Jesus asked a really important question. Who do people say that I am? Some of you may know this, but I bet you most, maybe all don't. My dad was a big deal. Now, not a big deal like a politician's a big deal or somebody in the news is a big deal, but he and his generation was a really big deal. He went to the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill from 1938 to 42, and during that time, he went there specifically to play all sports. He was an unbelievable athlete. Now, from those who know me well, you'll be shocked to know that my father was a great athlete, because I am not. But nonetheless, he was. He was an all-American football player. He was captain of the football team and played both positions and was a basketball player. He was, by definition, the BMOC. You know what that stands for? Big man on campus. He was a big guy. What he was not, however, was a big student. <laughs> Those were mismatches in that era. In the late 30s and 40s, you could be adult. He wasn't adult, but he had no interest. He had no interest in math or history or science or any of those sort of things. So he sort of went through school, and he was also the definition, in addition to being the BMOC, he was also the definition of the gentleman's seat. I think he got the C's because that was the polite thing to do. So, the family story goes, he was taking a final exam one time in European history. He knew so little about it. He had a strategy. Now, in those times, people used blue books. Anybody remember what a blue book is? It literally was a blue book. It was a paperback blue book, and you got as many as you needed. And there were, I don't know, maybe 16 pages in each, very widely uh, lined, and, and you needed to use it for your exam. As you did an essay, as you wrote the essay, you wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. You put your name on the front, maybe your class name, your class section, or, or what class it was. And, and at the end, if you had two blue books, or God forbid three, you kind of stuffed them inside, and that was your exam. And then the professor had to read the blue books. So everybody in the class had a blue book. And the professor wrote the question up on the board, and everybody began to write. Now, my dad's strategy was the more you wrote, the better it is because you might actually come on the right answer. So he began to write. He wrote everything he knew how to write. Write, 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 write. Write for hours. Half hour before the end of the test, the professor announces half hour to go. And, and many of the students had already finished because they honed into the right answer and got it and were finished and on to the next thing. There was a growing stack of blue books in the front, but not my dad's. He kept writing, writing, writing. 15 minutes, 5 minutes, 30 seconds, end your sentence. Professor called time. My dad was the only one sitting there, continuing to write. Write, write, write. Professor said, I'm sorry, I'm not accepting any more exams. Picked up the stack of blue books and walked out. Dad hadn't finished. Writing, 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 writing. Finally, he came to a conclusion. Closed his blue book, ran down the quad at Chapel Hill, found the professor still walking down toward his office carrying the stack of blue books. He said, I, I'm finished now, professor. Professor, I'm sorry, I'm not accepting any more blue books. The exam's closed. My dad said, do, do you know who I am? 
Professor, what? He said, do you know who I am? The professor was astonished and looked at him and said, do you know who I am? The professor said, no, son, I don't, and I don't care. My dad said, good. He picked up the middle of the blue book stack, stuck his in, and put him down. <laughs> he walked off, satisfied. I wonder how long it took the professor to figure out he'd been had. But the fundamental question was, do you know who I am? Had he known that, then I suppose whatever my dad wrote really wouldn't have mattered. The disciples. And by the way, you can insert your name for the disciples. Kate, Sandra, Kurt, John, Mary, Jan, doesn't matter. The disciples were standing there and Jesus asked such an important question. Who do people say that I am? It was like a test. Well, they began to write in their blue books. <laughs> uh, we think you're Elijah. No, Elijah. Uh, no, the prophets. Now, now, whenever you read multiple answers like that in Scripture where somebody's coming, what it, what it really means is the, the teller of the story didn't want to write all the answers. I suspect that they were, they were like kindergarten kids when a teacher holds up a piece of paper and says, does anybody know what this is? Everybody's got an answer. All the disciples had an answer. Jesus was filled with it. Because you know what? They were only giving small bits of the answer, of the truth of who he was. Now, none of them were wrong. They were just tranches. They were slices. It wasn't the whole loaf. They were giving him one piece of bread at a time. He wanted, I am the loaf. Finally, finally he said to Peter. Now, remember Peter, who Peter is. Peter is the guy upon whom the church is going to be built. Peter, the rock, Petra the rock. Jesus says to him, but Peter, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter gives the right answer, the complete A-plus answer. Peter says, you are the Messiah. Now, that's packed. That's 28 blue books in one. That's a packed answer. It is so packed that Jesus says to Peter, yeah, but don't tell anybody. Now, you may also remember in the Passion Week and at the crucifixion that Peter follows those directions because when they said, who is this man? Peter said, oh, I don't know him. I don't know him. He followed the directions well. But I don't think it was because Peter was such a faithful direction follower. I think Peter knew the depth of what Jesus had just revealed in his answer. He realized how scary it was. He realized how frightening it was to hear that this is the whole enchilada. This is everything you get in God, incarnate. Incarnate meaning in man. Peter knew that, so, so he also knew that if his ministry was going to be effective, he needed to maybe dole it out in slices, droppers, little bits. Now, lest you think that Scripture is old, which it is, and static, which it is not, and applies not to our lives right now, I'm going to give you a contemporary example. I'm not unaware that yesterday was an important anniversary in our country, and in fact, in our world. 9-11 was a tremendous event, and each one of us have, I am confident, 
a very vivid current memory of where you were and what you were doing at the time you learned of the horrific attack. I know I did because two weeks earlier I had moved my family, my wife, our first grade daughter, our third grade daughter to Manhattan. We lived exactly two miles above ground zero. I just started seminary at General. And the girls were uptown at school, and Kathleen was, I don't know where, I guess in our apartment, and I was in class because nobody knew where that was. And when all this started to unfold, I have what the psychologists call a flashbulb memory. That's a technical term. You, you have it too, by the way. You can probably turn to the person next to you and say exactly where you were and what you were wearing and what you were doing when this all happened. It is so vivid. As the days unfolded, people often ask the question, where was God? Where was God in all this? How could God let this happen? Well, September 11th, 2001 was also an important day, even before the terrorist attack, because Rowan Williams was coming to speak. Now, Rowan Williams subsequently became the Archbishop of Canterbury, but at this time he was, he was just a low-level Bishop of Wales, <laughs> the Archbishop of Wales, actually. But perhaps noted, no, the most noted theologian in the Anglican Communion, and certainly of a tiny, tiny handful in the whole world in our generation, Rowan Williams was coming to talk to us. Now, he didn't come on 9-11, but he did show up on 9-12. And when he showed up, there wasn't just the usual suspects of seminarians. Everybody was present. Everybody S-R-O, standing room only. We were there to hear wisdom drip from the mouth of the guy who could probably tell us, where was God in all this? We wanted to know so that when people said to us, who do people say God is, we could use his words. Well, he said something remarkable. He said, God was not present on 9-11. God allowed himself to be locked in the heart of the terrorist. God chose not to make himself present on 9-11. But his utility flowed forth on 9-12. Now, lest you think I am speaking in literal terms about days on a calendar, this is metaphorical. That if our God is a God of free will, then free will means you've got to stand back when bad stuff happens because you've got a solution. As Peter said, that was too scary to say to everybody else, you're the Messiah, Jesus. You're the Messiah. You're everything. Whether we lose towers or temples and turn to dust, we sing about that periodically. But you are the Messiah. We, we disciples, we people of Christ, we, we find it hard to embrace the fullness of that concept. But what Rowan Williams was telling us, and what I'm passing on to you, is that God's utility is seen in the most marvelous and unbelievable ways. In the ensuing mercy, and the ensuing healing, which, by the way, never comes quickly. 
Ask a cancer patient. Healing takes a long time. And so, when Peter is asked, who do you say that I am? And he correctly answers, you're the Messiah. And Jesus tells him, don't tell anybody else. It wasn't to hide the fact. It was to create effectiveness. These things must be doled out in time. So constantly, constantly we are asked, who do we say that Jesus is?